Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest is Alex James, and we're going to talk today about living with bereavement. Alex James lives and works in England and is currently based at a hospice developing specific services for children, supporting children and their families pre- and post-bereavement. She is the author of Living with Bereavement. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello. Hello. Hi, Alex. It's great to have you on the show today. Hi, Hi, Gloria. Talk to you after meeting with you and going out to your facility and uh, talk to, to our audience a little bit about, you know, you kind of have dual things. You've written this wonderful book, Living with Bereavement, which we'll be talking about. It's a very comprehensive book with a, with a lot of areas in it. And you're doing some wonderful creative things, and, and you, part of it is a hospice there, right? I, I've been very fortunate. Here in um, the United Kingdom, we have the BBC, and the BBC fund um, through a program called Children in Need. They they put on a wonderful um, program and encourage people, all our celebrities, get together and put on this show. And they encourage the public to pay money, and that money goes to um, provide people like me um, in organisations. And um, the hospice of St Francis in Berkhamsted is a very forward-thinking. It's a brand new hospice, and um, they're very innovative. And they have facilitated some of my work, which is, um, which people are saying is quite groundbreaking and different, and is proving itself to work very well with uh, children pre and post bereavement. Well, talk a little bit about what is groundbreaking about your work. Well, I think previously we've, I, I know that organisations that work with children, um, generally post bereavement, um, use a lot of creativity and art, and um, and I know that children who are um, uh, disabled have uh, been involved with animals. Animal assisted therapy is is, is a proven way of working. Um, what I'm doing is I'm bringing animals to work with bereaved children. Um, we're at the hospice, we've been able to facilitate having ponies up there and um, the children that are finding great difficulty talking are able to communicate with the animals and talk to us whilst they are involved with the animals. So, Because um, children are great multitaskers anyhow and, and, and we can bring in all these different ways of working. We use music and art. And yeah, let's, talk, let's go slowly with this now because you are doing some wonderful things now. Now with the animals, would the children actually take care of them and brush them and things like that? Or? Well, the, the idea was that we, we started with, um, with us taking one small pony up to visit a dying mother, and uh, the mother engaged very well with the pony, and the children were able to have that hands-on experience. The pony actually went into the room with the mother, wow. and, um, and we were able to take photographs, and it was a very lovely occasion for them. It, it brought back lots of memories of where mum has been very well. And you know, if you have any photographs of that, Alex, it would be wonderful to put on our Facebook, wouldn't it, Heidi? It would, and, and Alex is an author, so you can also go to Open to Hope and, and read some articles that she's written about these kind of things. Right. So I'm so fascinated that you brought a pony into the room. How incredible. 
I think that's, that, that was agreeable because I think, you know, I'm very fortunate that the hospice, the particular hospice that I'm working at, has been very, very open-minded and facilitated a lot of this work that I'm, I'm doing. You know, I'm very client-led. And, and what happened was the children were able to have these photographs of their mother with the pony around the bed, and the mother died um, shortly afterwards. And those photographs have become very, very important parts of their memory work. And um, we also had a, a young father who was um, terminally ill, and we were able to bring in a pony, and his daughter was able to show him on that pony how she could trot and, and ride around. And, and that was a really lovely day where the family, the whole family were there, and um, there were lots of hugs. And, and I kind of had this theory that if, you know, if, if traumatic, awful events can traumatize us and be remembered, then if we can put good events in as well, they can be remembered in the same way. And, and so the association of the pony and the hospice will bring something lovely for those children in their memories in the future um, rather than it being a hushed um, journey of, of dying. You know, we try to um, get the parents living until they die and the children to be very involved in that. And uh, the, what's happening with the work is that the children that are having this kind of support and they're being very involved uh, pre-death are actually doing um, very well afterwards and not needing so much afterwards. Now, that, that's uh, really wonderful. And, and I'm just picturing as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of our audience thinking about a hospice in New York City or something. Pretty hard to bring a pony in. But you are in such, that hospice is in the most beautiful country setting, Heidi. And the rooms all look out on y grass and yard and countryside. Wow. But, but Mom, I'm thinking, I want to interrupt for a minute because I'm thinking in New York you couldn't bring a pony, but you could bring a small dog or cat. Right. Are you doing anything with smaller animals, Alex? Yes, I, I, I have two little puppies that I, I take in regularly, and um, we have also have what we call a pack dog, a dog that has been um, specially trained um, to work um, with, with people, and that, that's, it belongs to our chef at the hospice, actually, and is around for patients to, to fuss. And um, as I say, the, the hospice, we're, we're all about living until you die there, so you know we, we allow people to bring in their, their pets and have them with them, and um, children are there and families stay over and it is as you say it's, it, it, it's a really lovely place it's um, in the middle of I think it's probably in the middle of about four acres of countryside and it sits on the hill there and um, wonderful and, and the is, and the pony is kind of a miracle pony tell Heidi about how you found the pony um, I, I was um, out going out for a walk with my girlfriend and I was on the way to meet her and um, and it was a really cold day. It was a year ago last January, it had been snowing and all of a sudden trotting down the road was this little pony. Oh my gosh. And um, I think he's all of two foot six high, which is about 28 inches high. And I got a dog lead out of my car and, and, and thought, well, who does he belong to? And it turned out that he had been dumped. He's a stallion, so I don't know whether he, he had just, um, you know, been dumped because he was a little bit aggressive or what, but he certainly isn't aggressive here. He's lovely, and uh, he's very happy living with me here at, uh, at my home and has done this wonderful work going up to the hospice to meet the children, and we call wow. him Vernon. <laughs> yeah, so amazing little story. Well, tell me now, do you are you able to follow the children? How long can you follow them after, and do you have any special things you do with them? Yes, we, we have a, an open door policy. I think the children, you know, as they, um, 
I can, I can kind of illustrate this, if I may, by saying that I, I have a young man that I worked with when he was 13 and again when he was 21. And what he said to me at 21 was that at 13 he knew his father had died, but he didn't realize it was going to be forever. And so I think children have different needs at different times. And so it would be quite inappropriate to say, well, you know, this child had this support for this long and won't need any more. And uh, so we have an open door and children can keep dipping in and out as they do, as and when they need the support. But um, what happens at the moment in an ideal situation is that we meet the children pre-bereavement and then we, after death, we're with them through the funeral um, we, we support the family with all of those things and afterwards, and then we continue to visit until the children um, don't really feel they need it anymore, and that's our goal that the children say. Well, now, uh, now I, today. yeah, <laughs> and I know people are thinking, now, how does this get paid for? This is through the, this uh, program that celebrities put on and money is given, and yeah. it's through the government? Well, or? well my, my job gets paid for. I'm, I'm a paid 18-hour post. But um, obviously, I have to donate quite a few hours to do the work that, that I'm doing. I have a team of 12 volunteers who work with me, and um, and they are all highly trained professional people who have worked with children, and um, and then give their time to work with me. The Hospice of St Francis relies heavily on volunteers. We have, I think, nearly a thousand volunteers now working there. Um, wow. We have. Um, Ten open beds, I believe, and a team of fantastic nurses and doctors. But we um, are totally funded by the community and to run the hospice. Well, I think the government gives something like 10%. I could be wrong on my figures, but it's around 10%. And um, the, 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 the community raised nearly £3 million every year to keep the hospice going. Wow, wonderful. So £3 million and, yeah. Um, and we have eBay. I was going to say, Heidi, they've got a whole room full of eBay products that people give, and they yeah, sell them on eBay. Fabulous. Did. It was a fantastic visit, actually, that wasn't it, Gloria, because I was able yes. to show you around and, uh, and and showed you the eBay, yeah, which is... Uh, yeah, the, and people volunteer all this material from the community, and they sell it on eBay, which I think is so great. Well, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the projects. I know you do fabulous things with art, and, I, and I'm thinking if you could talk a little bit about some of your projects and uh, what families could actually do with family members, mm -hmm. with kids. Well, one of the things that that struck me in, in, in other work that I've done, and, you know, obviously I work in lots of different areas, not only at the hospice, but one of the things that children will say to me on a regular basis, and, and um, I think I spoke to you about this, group, so mainly about that, that as they start to get older, they start to say things like, I can't remember how big my dad was. I can't, I've grown and I can't remember how he was. So some of the work that I started to do was to draw around the parents and to make a life-size picture of them. Mm. And that, that as a keepsake. So they actually can lie down on the... Yeah, when they're the, well enough, get whatever. them to lay down on the floor and draw around them. And um, obviously, if this is post-bereavement, that's not so possible. But then we could perhaps figure out how tall Dad was and draw a life-size picture of him. We made a life-size collage of, of their father, who was at that time dying. And that was on the wall of his room there. And what it in, I'd intended it to be a work of art for the children, but actually it was wonderful because all the visitors that came started to add little bits of art, and it became a wonderful piece for them to then keep 
um, after his death, and it's, it's just a lovely painting of him and, and everything that they added to it. And then after bereavement, with some of the children that aren't really um, um, talking a lot or, or haven't had that support pre-bereavement, I will quite often get sheets of paper and fill a whole wall and ask them to paint how they're feeling. And whilst they're doing that, they'll be talking to me about what they're painting and, and what's happening. You know, that again, that's very, very useful way of working. Um, we use lots of different ways of, of enabling children to tell their stories and to continue the bonds with their deceased loved ones and to uh, make meaning of, of the journey that they're going through. So, and we so I love all this, Alice, because I was telling you, you, my mom at break, and you, and my mother already knows this from all the work we do, the, one of the biggest concerns that parents have when I give workshops to parents is that their children are not talking. And they'll come mm. in and say to me, Heidi, my children are not talking, so therefore I don't think they're – I'm really concerned that they're not grieving. Now, for those mm. parents, what would you say that they could do to facilitate expressions of grief? And maybe it doesn't need to be talking. I don't know. I think that, um, that, that, that children have their own way. They dip in quick. We call it happy-sad. Um, from my perspective of working, they can be happy and sad at the same time, and they can appear not to be in the same place as, uh, as we, we think that we are, you know, when we're, we're so deep in it and we're in it for a long time, they'll dip in and out. Um, and so based on that, what we do is we try to encourage them to write their own stories about their loved one. And quite often in a family, you'll get three or four children, and they've all got a different view of their mum or their dad or their brother that's died. And one will say, oh, he liked that, and the other will say, no, he didn't, he liked that. So what we try to do is, is let each child have their own memory, and we, we give the value to to each child's own memory and say, well, that's your perception of them, and that's okay, that's how they were. And we get them to write their stories and take photographs and put them together in a book. And, um, and they enjoy doing that. And, of course, while they're doing this wonderfully creative book, which is going to be a keepsake, they also talk to our support workers about what they're actually putting in there and when that was taken and who that person is and what their feelings are. And that seems to... And that, we, we work like this with children up to the age of 18, and they seem to really enjoy doing it. And those books become very precious. And it opens that forum for conversation, you know, with, with parents as well, because we sometimes have parents making a book with the child as well. You know, that's interesting because I was just thinking... Uh, it, for people out there who, who are concerned about their kids, you might ask an uncle and a, or an aunt or somebody if you, <clears throat> you know, I myself don't think I had the energy to do that, and, and plus I'm not a picture bookmaker. My husband is more so. But I think you could ask other family members to do some yeah. things with kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to ask other family members of that they have. I think... I think one of the things that that we seem to work very hard at is, is is almost putting the person that's died aside and trying to get over it in some way and and trying to fill the space and and move on and actually um, what I'm thinking is is healthier is continuing that bond acknowledging the space and keeping those stories of that person going you know the stories that made them who they are. And, and handing those down, because that's all part of our heritage, isn't it, and, and who we are. Um, somebody's been in your life, they've, they've, they've touched your life, and to carry those stories forward and, and to be okay with that and okay with the space as well that they've left and, and not try to fill it or replace the person with, with other things. 
So what if somebody's had, uh, you've got somebody who's had a traumatic event, something traumatic happened. What, what would you do with that? I, I usually, you know, if I'm, if I'm working with children that's been a road death or, or, or they've witnessed something awful like that, I usually will, will go and um, nine times out of ten they'll be playing a game or doing something else. I usually get down to their level and just ask them, um, what happened? What happened to you? What's, what's gone on here? And because of the, the honesty, and I think that's the key word there, to be honest and, and to talk to children in an age-appropriate way and to not, I think I always say to, to people that I'm working with, it's not our business to hurt children. What we want to know is if they're hurting and it's our business to make sure that they don't fill in any gaps with fantasy because that's potentially more dangerous than the truth and more hurtful than the truth sometimes. So we have to gently find out what they know, how they're seeing things, and make little adjustments in an age-appropriate way so that as, as they're growing older, we can feed them bits more of information and, and just hold that. And we can use all sorts of other ideas and ways you know i do walk talk as well where we just go for a walk in the woods and talk about stuff and and not always about that subject but introduce it gently and then allow the children to move on um and, and i think walk talks could, could, could be amazing alex because my mom and i've done a lot of shows and that where we've talked about how if you're side by side with each other shoulder to shoulder especially with boys and not staring yeah. at someone sometimes it's yeah. easier for children yeah. to converse and talk Yes, and also, you know, that the, the children are great multitaskers, and I think, you know, because oh, I'm certainly not a very good multitasker, but, you know, a lot of the kids I work with are playing on the Wii while I'm talking to them, and that's okay, you mm-hmm. know, because they they actually do. Most children have this, this ability to be able to listen to three or four things at the same time, and, and so we can do a lot of work if we can just play and walk and and, and that's and good for parents i think sometimes parents feel like everything needs to be turned off shut down and you need to stare at me yeah. if we're going to have a conversation so what we're saying yeah. to, it sounds like what we're saying to parents out there is if your kid is playing on the wii and you're having a conversation about a loss that's okay that is okay yeah, yeah I, lo- I love that walk talk idea well alex uh, i wanted to say your book living with bereavement it's a great book and it's a it's a very nice read with nice examples but you do cover more than just children you cover a lot of a lot of area in this book, and and I was interested in one area that you talk about, where you talk about uh, ambivalent relationships. Uh, you know, what if you've had your spouse to die and and you were ambivalent? I mean, uh, it's not like wow, he's finally gone or she's finally gone, and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. What's your take on that? I I think that what we have to do is allow ourselves to be who we are with with the deceased because that's who we were with them when they were alive and we have to give ourselves permission to have all sorts of feelings and and not beat ourselves up for for, for how we might feel afterwards or what we think people um, expect of us. I think sometimes assumptions from outside can put pressure on people to be a certain way or to to feel that they've got to behave in a certain way. and, and I think it's actually quite healthy to say, actually, that isn't how it is, or that isn't how I'm feeling. I'm feeling this, and you know, that's what that relationship was to you. And I, I think that's really important that that we all hold the relationship um, with the person that's died to what it was to us in life, because that's what it was. That's the reality. And and uh, you know, I think not- sometimes with ambivalent relationships, they took a lot of our energy and a lot of our thought processes mm. when we're angry with people or when we're upset with 
say, I know a lot of parents are upset with drug-addicted kids or, yeah. you know, uh, where suicide's involved and all that kind of thing. I think sometimes people are surprised at the enormity of their feelings um, after divorce or, you know, when they're not even living with them or people, you know, make contact with them and they are surprised at the level mm-hmm. of uh, loss they're feeling. But that, that's, that's how people feel, isn't it? And I think we... There's this thing, isn't there, about glorifying the dead and, and, and making them perfect. And actually, we none of us are perfect. And, um, you know, with, with things like suicide, when, when that happens, the, the amount of feelings that are left and the stigmas associated with it and the hurt, and those feelings have to be expressed. And I think, um, from my perspective, I'd say it's about if, you, if, you, if you're with someone who's going through something like that, it's bearing to hear it and bearing to be with it. And, and allow people to be how they're feeling and to express those feelings because once that's stuffed out, better memories can come in. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you're holding all that hurt, it's very difficult to remember better days, isn't it? And, and, right, and, and the thing is that, that people have to be reminded of is that even if you had an ambivalent relationship and even if you had a relationship where you fought all the time, it doesn't mean that you didn't completely love that person. We can yeah. love people and still have an ambivalent relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Alex, um, people can get your book through Amazon, I assume, right? Yes, they can. Yes, they can. And they can go to my website as well. Yeah, tell us what your website is. Um, It's www.bereavement.co.uk. Great, and you can go to Alex's site, and you can also read uh, all the great things she's put on our site. Alex, uh, do you want to mention your new book that you're coming out with and and why you're doing it? I have, um, at the moment, um, with a colleague, we have written a children's song and storybook, um, which will be, um, well, it's in draft form at the moment. We have a children's choir singing the song, and I'm hoping that will be the children's remembrance song um, for bereavement. I love that idea. Isn't that great, Heidi? They have a children's choir that are singing the song. That would be, you wrote it, right, Alex, with, with yeah, your friend? Yeah, I did. And, and I wrote it um, um, with the hope that we can raise money for the Children's Remembrance Centre, which is the bereavement centre that I am hoping to fund here in the UK. You know, we start these things small and watch them grow, and that's... Uh, right, that's and, and animals will be very involved in that, correct? So, yes, we will have um, a thing called the Rabbit Hop, where we're going to have some rabbits and bales of straw, and children can go and stick in with the rabbits. I was observing some children at a bereavement project some weeks ago where they were happily chasing the rabbits around and trying to pick them up and cuddle them and and you know there was a lot of joy in that as well and I think that they're quite a good animal along with the puppies and and the ponies that they can groom and uh, and have a sit on and fabulous well Alex thank you so much for calling us all the way from uh, the UK and thanks for being thank one of our authors me. and it's just been great uh, yes I'm Alex I love you again soon. I love all the creative things you're doing they are fabulous thank you thank you You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.